I'll read two passages of Scripture this morning, and then we will, uh, then we will pray and jump into our subject today. I'm going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 2, briefly, and then from Isaiah 58. In 1 Samuel 2, the Lord is speaking to the, um, to the wicked priest Eli about his, his, own, his own personal and his family compromise. And he is, he's told Eli he's, taking away the, uh, he's going to be taking away the position of the priesthood from, from his house. And in the midst of that, the Lord of God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And then Isaiah 58 If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we are, we are delighted to be gathered here in your house on your Sabbath, on this, on this Lord's Day in September. We thank, you. we thank you for gathering us here and pray you would make it our delight and we would consider it, we would sanctify it as honorable and distinct and significant above the other days of the week, even as we gather here. Lord, bless us as we study the lives of men and women who have claimed your name. Lord, let us be encouraged by their good example. Let us be instructed and sobered uh, by their sins and their failings. Lord, let us above all see the man Jesus Christ in all things and glorify him, in whose name we pray. Amen. On January 16, 1902, Eric Henry Little was born in, uh, was born in Tientsin in northern China. Uh, we're, talking about, we're going to be talking about the great Christian Olympian and missionary Eric Little today. Um, anyone familiar with Eric Little? Would this be the first time for anybody? All right, I'm seeing smiles, hands. Excellent. This is, uh, this is, it's been a pleasure studying him and learning more about him. Most people, if you're like most people, you were first introduced to him with the uh, 1981 film Chariots of Fire, which is a, uh, it's just a, it's a very accurate retelling of Little's life. They, they took some liberties with his, uh, his great rival Harold Abrams' story in that movie, but Little's side of it is pretty, it's pretty spot on. If you haven't seen it, it's well worth a watch, uh, but it only really tells half the story of Little's life. We're going, to try, we're going to talk about his Olympic career this morning and then try to touch a little bit on the, the other half of it that people are not familiar with, his missionary work. While studying him, I was reminded a lot of Renton's study a week, several weeks ago, well, probably several months ago now, on um, Jim Elliott. Very, very similar, very, very similar men in many, many ways, both in their athletic prowess, in their pers- their, both their spiritual and their physical strength, as well as their heart for the Lord and for his work. You're going to see a lot of parallels, I think. Um, Eric, uh, Little's parents were James and Mary Little, and they were Congregationalist missionaries um, sent, to, sent to China from the London Missionary Society. And both the Congregational Church, the, the, the London missionary, missionary Work, and China would loom large in the, would, loomed very large in the Little family. The Littles were originally from Scotland, uh, near Edinburgh, and while his, and at about age eight, 
uh, Eric and his older brother Rob were sent back to London to boarding school at Eltham College. It was, pretty, pretty, it, was a, it was a traditional boarding school for the children of missionaries. And so they would have spent much of their young life growing up apart uh, from their parents laboring in China. They'd see them when they came back on furlough. And, um, but their family was very, very close, and their family's vision would define both of the little boys uh, for the rest of their lives. Indeed, Eric was the second born, if I have the order correctly, of four children. He had his older brother, Rob, uh, and then his younger sister, Jenny, and Ernest, who uh, it's many years before he even met Ernest, who was born in China while his parents were there. Eltham College... Uh, Eltham College was, like many British schools at the time, was designed to train uh, the entire, the whole student, uh, train up the whole man, the whole woman, uh, in all areas of life. Um, it's said that both Rob and Eric performed outstandingly in the sports they took up. There were athletic sports in the spring, cricket in the summer session, and rugby football in the winter months. Does, anyone, does everyone know what rugby football is? It's very important if you're going to study it. Rugby football is American football with no pads and way fewer rules. Um, that, at least that'll be the simplest definition for this morning. I'll, I'll hear hard words from my brothers on the front row here about that later. And rugby football in the winter months. The teaching and training received at such a school, moreover, encouraged a balanced view of life. It would have involved a restful Sunday, free from sport and study, and focusing on the spiritual needs of the boys. Besides church attendance at the congregational church next to the school at Blackheath, there would be prayers in the chapel, and it appears that the brothers were involved in forming a crusader group in the college. The Crusaders' Union was evangelical, non-denominational Bible class uh, for boys. And it's, uh, this, this balanced, well, full-orbed uh, life was one of the defined char- characteristics of Little. Um, you know, we, when, you think, when you talk about an Olympic athlete, you typically figure that he, will be defined, he or she will be defined by the sport being pursued. Um, and that's certainly what we, that's certainly where, sorry, Greg, that's certainly where the story, you know, certainly what we first think of a little, but it's certainly not the only thing. And he would, he would, uh, he would balance athletics and evangelism uh, throughout the mess, much of the rest of his life, and it began very early for him in school. Um, at, um, upon graduating from boarding school, he entered the University of Edinburgh uh, and began studying there. He also continued his athletic career. He would basically run, basically the way the athletic season worked out is through the spring and the summer he would be running. He, would, he was a sprinter and he was running in, uh, he was running in field, track and field events as we would call them today. All over, um, all over Scotland at first, but pretty soon he was heading into Britain and beginning to compete against international competitors as well. He was very, very fast and that became very clear early on uh, in his life. And then very unusual, and then seems unusual for us to think of today, but then when the fall came around, he would leave running for the rugby field. And he was considered, and uh, speed was often considered, he, he, was a, he had a very wiry, slender frame, and he had a lot of speed, which were not necessarily viewed as assets in the game at that time. When, when, bull, when as, in, as in the modern, uh, you know, modern descendants of rugby, Size and physical strength uh, and bulk, you know, counted for a lot. However, he could just flat out outrun competitors on the rugby field and was considered a very, an excellent player of the game. And so he would, uh, he basically was playing sports, um, you know, all, all throughout the year. And yet it's noted that his, he, while he was very disciplined in practice, he was not obsessive in it. 
this wasn't the only thing he was doing. He was exceptional as, in his academic pursuits, and he was also began in college to start uh, doing, began, began to engage in evangelism, both amongst the college community, and then as he gained success in running in particular, he would often hold um, what we might call in America camp meetings, or you know, preaching af on the day after events. And so a lot of his fans would then stay afterwards to hear uh, to hear him the hear the he would preach the gospel, but they would be staying just to hear about you know just to hear a uh, an athletic celebrity speak. There's um, if you've seen the movie Chairs of Fire, there's a they there's an event in particular that shows a lot of his grit stamina on the track. It was what's called a triangular meet, which means there were teams from three different countries coming together for a running competition. Competition was a 200 meters, and it was held between. Uh, England, Scotland, and France, and um, early on, and so Little was on the inside, so they were running around an oval track, and it's always important, and I've, I've learned this studying his, studying his career, um, when you're running, it's, your position is very, very important. Obviously, on your outside, you're going to have further distance to travel, but you're also going to be more isolated. You won't have to think about, pay attention to, or be affected by other runners much. Little on this time was on the inside track, and Within just, a few just, within just a few yards of the starting point, a uh, competitor next to him tripped and knocked, uh, knocked Little to the ground on the infield grass. He fell down, rolled, and immediately sprang back to his feet. He was now way behind the rest of the competitors. Um, a lesser runner would have just stopped at that point because there was no way he was going to finish even the top five, let alone, you know, it was a field of eight. There's no way he was going to finish the top five. Well, he started running, and by the end of the race, uh, just before the finish line, he caught the leader and ended up winning. And at the moment he, he snapped the tape, he collapsed to the ground, uh, physically exhausted. He exerted himself so strongly that his running was actually off the rest of that season. He, there was some kind of injury, whether he just winded himself too much or pulled a muscle, but he pushed his body to its absolute limit. Um, and this is something we're going to see again you know, several times. You, if you study his career, you see him do this multiple times. He, he exceeded what was considered physically possible on the track in much of his, much of his running. Um, and uh, it was going to be something, it was going uh, to be kind of a defined aspect of his career. One of the other things to note is he was running 100 and 200, uh, 100 and 200 meter sprints at this time. These were, so this is not, this is, you know, if we, most people when they think of, most people's contact with running is jogging early in the mornings or running marathons. Where you are, you know, where you're trying, where pacing yourself and maintaining, maintaining your stamina is important. These were flat-out runs. The moment the sprinter would, uh, the sprinter would kneel down and burst off, you know, with the shot of the gun, and then run as flat out as fast as possible, as soon as possible, to get there before the other competitors. So it's very, very different. It's very, very different from what most of us experience running. As a matter of fact, runners would not only stretch and warm up, but they would actually have masseurs to uh, massage their muscles because they needed to be instantly limber. So unlike me, early in the morning, trying to creak, go creaking around the neighborhood, their muscles had to be instantly ready for action the moment the gun was, the starter's gun was fired. Very, very short, very, very extreme bursts of speed was what they were going for. Well, anyway, Little was rapidly developing into uh, one of the most famous athletes the British Isles had ever produced. And so there, uh, there was, so he began to be encouraged to consider the 1920, uh, with the, the Olympic Games were coming up in Paris in 1924. These would have been the eighth, uh, the eighth summer, uh, what we consider the Summer Olympics. Um, 
However, before this, uh, in advance, uh, and so little was, little was 20, 20 uh, little was 21 at the time, looking, to, would be 22 by the time he went, uh, if he went to the Olympics. And uh, he's began, he looked at the schedule for it, and it fell out something like this. So the first, so there were, there were going to be four events that he was, that he was uh, qualified for. There was a 100 meter, a 100 meter event, a 400 meter event, and then two, and then two relay races, a 100 meter and a 400 meter. And in a relay race, you would, each, each competitor would be on a team of four. So Little would have been one of four representing Great Britain at the time. And what each would do is run a distance, hand a baton to the next runner who would run back a distance that had just been run, and so on and so forth. And whoever, whichever team completed the relay first would win. The first, uh, the first events were going to be, each event was going to be run in two sections. You would have qualifying heats, that shorter races, just to make sure the fastest were the ones that made it into the semifinals and the finals, and then the main events. And these were usually split over two days. Uh, the 100 meters, and remember, the 100 and 200 meters were Little's events. This was what he was good at. He, uh, we're going to be on Sunday, 7th of July, and, and, and then Monday. Um, the 200 meters are going to be Tuesday and Wednesday. The uh, 400 meters on Thursday and Friday. And then the relays on Saturday and Sunday of the following week. And Little, so Little, Little immediately told the Olympic organizers in Great Britain, he said, I'll run, but not on Sunday. And this threw everyone up in this, you know, this threw everyone up, up in alarm because the, the events that he was particularly desired for, the relays and the 100 meters, were both on both either had heats or finals on Sunday. And he said, "I'm not going to do it. That's the Lord's day." Uh, they made all kinds of arguments, saying, "Well, it's well on the continent. The Sabbath ends around noon." And Little said, "Well, my Sabbath ends at the end of the day." So the whole, you know, he believed very strongly in the importance. Of keeping the whole day, uh, keeping the whole Sabbath holy. In the movie Chariots of Fire, they take a little artistic liberty at this point and make it seem like he went to Paris without knowing the schedule. Little actually knew the schedule well in advance, and so negotiation and uh, negotiation occurred <laughs> long into, uh, you know, long into the run-up to the Olympics. Uh, ultimately, read a section here. When Eric became aware of this, he made it perfectly clear that he would take part in. He would n take no part in any events scheduled for the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. As far as he was concerned, that was a day of rest and worship in terms of the fourth commandment. It was for him not a day for recreation or work, apart from such works as were of necessity or mercy. The theology of the Lord's Day as Christian Sabbath, to which Eric Little subscribed, held that the Sabbath principle was preserved through the day, uh, was preserved though the day was changed from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Most evangelical Christians held that the change of day was necessitated by three things. First, commemoration of the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week. Second, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost on the first day of the week, seven, seven weeks after the resurrection. And third, New Testament precedence. Um, it says efforts were made by the British Olympic Council to persuade the Olympic Committee in Paris, but they were of no avail. Uh, it seems that the British Olympic Council, towards the end of 1923, did appeal to the International Olympic Committee as well that athletes who object to running or taking part in any game on Sunday be given a chance to have their race or event arranged on another day. In reply dated 22nd of January 1924, the International Olympic Committee indicated they were not prepared to ask any other committee or the host country to make such changes at that point. This may not have been attempted only on behalf of Eric Little, but the strong likelihood is that it was the case of Eric Little that was a motivation for the approach. 
so he was urged he was urged to compromise on this principle on this point. Uh, they also made efforts to try to change the Olympic Committee, both internationally and in Paris, to change it to no avail. The 100 meters would remain on Sunday. The relays would remain on Saturday and Sunday. And so, li so little um, little was now faced with having to change his focus because remember he was a sprinter. He was designed for speed off the line and then flat out running all the way to the tape. The 400 meter event was were on Thursday and Friday, and he decided he would change his entire training regimen to focus on this event, which was very, very different. Um, the 400-meter event, or the 440 yards as it, was run, as it was organized and run in Great Britain, was considered a one-lap race. You were, um, so there was, there was not just sheer speed, but you had to have staying power to actually make it all the way around. It was very interesting. I did not know this, but um, a, an experienced runner can run flat out at the rates that were done in events at the time for about 250 meters, at which point your body is using oxygen so fast that even for an athlete in peak condition, you can no longer respirate, you can no longer breathe in enough oxygen to actually keep your body going at that rate. So if you run flat out for the first half, you might be in the lead, but you're going to kill yourself on the second half, or more likely you're going to have to slow down. So this was complete change for what Little had been working to. It's, it's amazing what just uh, doubling or quadrupling the distance uh, means for an event. The whole strategy had changed. Little began retraining, and by the time he went to Paris, um, by the time he was ready to leave for Paris in July of 1924, his best time, the 400 meters, was around 49 seconds, which was very, very modest by international standards. This was not, this was not a gold medal performance. He had not turned in a gold medal performance yet. Um, but he went on, um, he, he did not compete in the 100 meters as he committed. He did compete in the 200 meters, this was an event he had experience in. He ended up coming in third and earning a bronze, earning a bronze medal. Not many people know that, they kind of focus on what would come next. But he did on, uh, he ran on Tuesday and then on Wednesday, he won a bronze medal for Great Britain. His, his, great rival, his famous rival, Harold Abrams, came in sixth in that race. And then Thursday and Friday comes, and he does very, very well. He does very, very well in the heats run on Thursday. Makes it into the semifinals and finally the finals on Friday the 11th of July. Um, his qualifiers had put him on the outside lane this time. So he would, he would ultimately run and see very, very little. Since he'd be going around the outside of a, a single turn, he'd see very, very little of his opponents. Uh, the way the, it was 400 meters run on a 500 meter track. So what you would do is you would start on the front stretch, you would go around one bend and then end on the back stretch, just 100 meters short of, the, of a complete lap. Um, so you would only have to do a single turn. He, ex with the starter's gun, uh, actually, let me stop. Before running the race, uh, Little, Little did something that was traditional for him. He, um, he, found, he found his mark, uh, he warmed up for just a moment, and then he walked down the line, um, shaking hands with his uh, seven other opponents, wishing them, wishing them um, Congratulations! You know, congratulating them for making this far, wishing them the best success in the race. Reporters at the time ha had a field day with this. This was very traditional for Little to do this. So, what he would, um, so as he was going down the line, reporters saying, uh, reporters would report that he was introducing himself and saying, "You're not going to see me again after this." Um, that was not true, uh, but it, it that he didn't say that, but it may have, he may have well have because that's what happened. Before one of the um, 
one of the masseurs, one of the massage therapists, if you will, who helped get little, run, helped get little and other runners for the British racing team ready, um, gave him a slip of paper. And with it was a brief, a brief quote from 1 Samuel 2 that we read at the start. Uh, Those who honor me, I will honor, it said. Uh, little was so moved by that. Uh, he not only, you know, he read it, uh, you know, he read it and stuck in his pocket that morning and then referred to it many times afterwards. But the other opponents, he got down on the starting line, took his position. With the starter's gun, he was off like a bolt of lightning, uh, like, the, like the sprinter that he was. He ran, um, unofficial recordings of the time said he ran the, uh, he ran the first half in around 20, the first half of the race around 20 seconds. His American opponent, um, his American opponent uh, was, was keeping track just behind him and expected to lose, uh, expected to catch up in the second half because he couldn't believe the rate of speed that he was watching the Scot Scotsman run in front of him. Um, and it was at this point that it was in the latter half of the race that he was expected to slow down because the human body just couldn't have kept up that rate. And you have to, you know, you have to imagine the picture because Little, Little had a very unorthodox uh, running style and it usually kicked in towards the end. He would, um, uh, he would at, while he was running, uh, particularly as he got toward the end, his, he would flail his arms like he was literally clawing at the air. He would, he would knock his head back and stare at the sky with his mouth gaping open as he sucked in air. And it was, it was, it was wildly, it was one of the ugliest things you've ever seen. <laughs> but his legs would absolutely devour the ground while he was running like this. Um, so it became part, it was his trademark style and everyone looked for it. And so at the second half of the race, he did that. He lost a little time, but by the end of the race, he had actually extended his lead over his American opponent to win by about, by about he had about a 12-foot lead by the time he came in. So you remember, he went to Paris with that 49, 50-second range. He finished, he finished this 400 meters in 46.7 seconds. Uh, which, was a, which was a new Olympic and world record at the time that would stand for 12 years after the run. It was the single, single finest performance of his whole racing career uh, that happened this day. He won the, he won the gold medal. He was, uh, and to the great adulation of the fans, the British, ra the British racing team, track and field team had seen very little success at the Olympics in recent years. It's a huge victory for, for the nation of Great Britain in addition to little personally. Uh, true to form, they didn't have podium ceremonies back in that day. You literally got your gold medal in the mail a few weeks later. It's very, very British. And uh, he would, so he took a few photographs, he waved to the crowd, and then he modestly uh, removed, himself, uh, removed himself from the stage. And by the next Sunday, when his, when his teammates were competing in the 100-meter and 400-meter relays, Little was preaching in the Scottish, Scottish Presbyterian Church in Paris at the time. Uh, he, had, he had come, proven what he had done, and it was time to be back for the more important things in life, as he considered them. Uh, I'd love to look at photographs. I'd love to look at press photographs of Little at this period. Um, while other opponents would be, you know, striking a pose, grinning for the camera, if Little's ever in the picture with someone else, he's always looking at the other people in the scene. And he's got this big cheesy grin on his face. He just looks like, I'm just so, I'm just so happy to be hanging with you guys. Uh, he was always um, he was always edifying, encouraging, uplifting uh, to those around him. His modesty and his humility at this time was noted on almost as much as his athletic prowess. He um, he was never vainglorious. He never took tremendous pride. Although he worked exceptionally hard at his sport, he never took tremendous pride in it, uh, and was always seeking to encourage others in what they did. 
And at this point, um, at this point in his career, he would have been expected to go on uh, to even greater and greater things, likely additional Olympic medals and you know, in a few years from now, because he was only 20, he was only 22 at the time. Um, as it was, he went returned to Edinburgh. Uh, he, later that year, he graduated, he completed the running season at the University of Edinburgh. He graduated, uh, he graduated there with very high honors. Uh, he was um, the, the party that he avoided in Paris, he got in Edinburgh, where he was, he was presented with a, a, um, a laurel crown of Olympic champion. He was put on a chair and carried on the shoulders of his classmates to the Cathedral of St. Giles in downtown Edinburgh. I've actually been there. My dad and I visited there uh, early in my college career. It's a beautiful cathedral with a statue of John Knox on the inside, and little would have, made, would have, little would have spoken to the uh, audience there for a time. And then he played his, played his last season of rugby that fall, and then it would have been, and then, and then his, uh, his attention began to shift as he began to continue preparation for the mission field. He entered seminary at the time. He ran his final running season in 1925, did exceptionally well. It's actually very interesting. So remember, he dropped out of the relay races in Paris, and, as, and the British team uh, ended up coming, ended up losing to the Americans in that, in the, particularly the 400 meter event. Um, but they had a, a rematch, if you will, in London at a, a championship game, a 400 meter relay in London. And it, very interestingly, the, uh, the British team won, Little was on and the British team won that time. So you can only imagine what might have happened in Paris if he'd been there as well. Um, so he got, to, he got to prove himself in that venue too. He went to seminary. Few, actually, he went to seminary, but I need to make a few other comments about his Olympic run. Uh, we'll talk about his wife, Florence, in just a minute, but she would later say that, um, that Eric always said that the great thing for him was that when he stood by his principles and refused to run the 100 meters, he found that the 400 meters was really his race. He said he would never have known that otherwise. He would never have dreamed of trying the 400 at the Olympics. So for him, it was always what the Lord required first. And then it was amazing to see how the Lord, how the Lord uh, brought him uh, so much because of that. He was also received a lot of, it's hard to imagine today when Sabbath observance is, is probably the most despised of many Christian principles. Um, but it's, uh, there was an, he attended an event honoring him later on, and the menu card for the event stated that the dinner was given, quote, in admiration of his remarkable athletic achievements, and of his devotion to principle as a reverend upholder of the Christian Sabbath. In the course of his introductory remarks, uh, Lord Sands, who was presiding, said that they all honored him for the public stand he had made in the face of the world for what he believed to be right. In these days of moral flabbiness, it was something to find a man who was not content to shield himself behind such easy phrases as, it is only once in the way, or when you go to Rome, you must do as they do in Rome. These would have been easy excuses for him to have made to run the event that he trained for and seen such a phenomenal success in, uh, but he did not. And he was honored for it. We need to remember the day that he lived in. Uh, it was a day when Sabbath observance was much higher than what we have seen today. Um, spiritual devotion was more widespread, but it was becoming cold. The hearts, hearts of many were growing cold. Formalism and legalism in both Scotland and England were taking heart. And that, was where, and that was what fueled the fire of Little's heart, was a, an evangelistic fervor, wanting to bring people back not to, not to a dead orthodoxy, not to, a, not to rules and regulations, but to the gospel. Uh, and that's what, that's what led him to preach and to labor 
He would usually run one day and preach the next, as I've said already. So in 1925, um, having completed a short seminary degree, he returned to China as a missionary, uh, returning to Tianjin, where he was born. And later, and he would later move to Zhaozong, a small, poor rural area, which, was current, which had been ravaged by the country's civil wars and was currently, undergoing, currently being menaced by the Japanese in the Second Sino-Japanese War. Uh, that war went from 1937 to 1945. Um, we don't know much of it because there was a, another fairly large conflict going on at the time that this got kind of swallowed up into World War II. Uh, 1940, 1945. So the, but even before that war began, the Chinese and the Japanese had been fighting and that had a profound effect in Northwest China where, uh, where the little family had been ministering for many, many years. From 1925 for about 10 years, little, uh, little, was, little taught science and obviously athletics at a boys' school for the sons of Chinese businessmen. Classes were conducted in English. It was designed to be kind of a preparation for international commerce and business. Uh, Little's, Little's, instruction, Little's instruction of science was appreciated, his athletics, uh, he had a profound influence in athletics, but it was really his Christian character that was, so that was so marked and influential at the time. He continued to run during this time. Um, he, he finished up his, he never competed on British soil, British or European soil again, but he continued to run in China, including, an event, including events against the Japanese and French teams fresh off their, their victories in the Olympics of 1928. Uh, Little won both the 200 meters and the 400 meters events against them. His times were not as good as his own Olymp his gold and gold medal performance, but it was good enough to beat uh, the Olymp you know, his contemporary Olymp Olympians at the time. And so in 1934, just before he wrapped up his career at the school, he met, he met, met and uh, he, he married Florence McKenzie. He and Florence was the daughter of Canadian missionaries um, out of Toronto, but they'd also been ministering in Tianjin, and they had courted for about uh, they courted for about five years. They first met in 1929, at which point, and then a year later, Florence returned to Toronto for uh, four years of training of training to be a nurse. And then when she returned, they were married in Tianjin. Um, they had. They had, a, they had a wonderfully happy marriage, which was incredible considering they saw very little of each other. I mean, that, that whole long distance courtship was kind of indicative of where their life would go. Um, they, had four, they had three daughters, Patricia, Heather, and Maureen. Little, um, little would end up never meeting Maureen before his death because she was born in Canada while he had remained in China. Um, so it was at this time that Little, that little uh, felt the call to actually get a little deeper, get his hands a little dirtier in the mission work. So he left the private school and went to Zhaozong, which was a small, basically a small farming community in northwest China. Um, but it had been, uh, it was an extremely dangerous place. And so um, Eric and Florence debated for a long time and ultimately decided that she was pregnant with Maureen with their third child. They ultimately decided it'd be best for her to return to Toronto and to the safety that, and have her child there in safety. Um, it was, that would have been in, that would have been in 1935. And a few years later, uh, well, you know, we, we touch on more familiar history. The Japanese would bomb Pearl Harbor, at which, point the Ameri at which point they and the United States would enter World War II. And the situation in China went from bad to worse. Little was unable to leave China. Florence was unable to return. 
Um, they had a f- uh, little visit his family a few times. Uh, let me see. I'm sorry. I've got my timeline mixed, mixed up. He started ministering in 1935 in Zalzong. It wasn't until 1940 uh, that Florence actually left for, uh, left for Canada and the safety there. Uh, the two of them corresponded regularly but would not see each other again. Uh, it was in 1941 that it was in 1941 that Little and other British American European citizens were rounded up by the Japanese and placed in internment camps. Um, Little ended up in one called uh, Visayan internment camp. Um, when you think of internment camp, it's not concentration camp per se. It's not that level of it's not that level of horror, uh, but it wasn't great either. Um, the conditions were rough, discipline was harsh, food was scarce, malnutrition and depression were very, very common uh, for those living within it. Uh, it, would have been, it would have been a mix of American, European, and Chinese families who were there. And Little, uh, but Little was much the same throughout his entire life. He was encouraging, he, uh, he was encouraging, he continued to teach, he continued to minister, to preach the gospel. He, uh, he, would, referee sun- he would referee hockey games on Sundays. Um, which you know raised some eyebrows, considering his stand on other things. Uh, but what had happened was the, when there were no organized hockey games, then the uh, the children organized their own, uh, boys versus girls, and fights broke out as a result. They were such a distraction and a menace to the tranquility of the camp. So Little decided he would take care of himself, and uh, had he was known uh, he was known with affection as Uncle Eric. Uncle being, um, uncle being a, a Chinese familiar term for someone, you know, for a male figure that you respect highly. He's known as Uncle Eric to all the inmates of the camp. And uh, there was an expression by one of the, the women of the camp about the, the morning devotion he would have with her husband. They were, in the, they were housed in the same dormitory in the internment camp. She said, once I asked him, but I really knew already, for my husband was in his dormitory and shared the secret with him. Every morning about 6 a.m., with curtains tightly drawn to keep Keep in the shining of our peanut oil lamp, lest the prowling sentry should think someone was trying to escape. Eric used to climb out of his top bunk, past the sleeping forms of his dormitory mates. Then at the small Chinese table, the two men would sit close together with the light, just enough to illumine their Bibles and notebooks. Silently they read, prayed, thought about the day's duties, noted what should be done. Eric was a man of prayer, not only at set times, though he did not like to miss a prayer meeting or communion service when such could be arranged. He talked to God all the time, naturally, as one, who can, as, one, as one can who enters the school of prayer to learn this way of interdiscipline. He seemed to have no weighty mental problems. His life was grounded in God, in faith, and in trust. In 1944, Little began to suffer severe headaches, and he, uh, he even had a small stroke. His, uh, there were a few lapses in his... Uh, con- you know, his consistently genial temper, a few outbursts of temper that were very unusual for him. He began to suffer from fatigue. Uh, his, you know, he remained fit and athletic all the way to the end of his life. Uh, but he, even that, he began to slow down and have difficulty concentrating uh, or getting up in the mornings. And in, turned out he was suffering from a, uh, turns out he was suffering from a um, brain tumor, um, uh, inoperable one. And on, 21st, and on February 21st, 1945, just a few months before the camp would be liberated uh, by the Allies, uh, Eric Little died in, in the middle of occupied China. 
He died in conversation with a friend discuss, discussing the importance of surrendering your will to God. Uh, his last words are debated, but it seems to be surrender was one of the first things, uh, was one of the last things that he was heard to say. Stammered a few times before he ultimately passed. He left his, he left his wife and his three children uh, safely back in Toronto. Um, his wife did not, his wife learned of his death through the, uh, through the Missionary Alliance, and then a few days later, later received the last letter that he had written and sent to her. Um, he, was, he has been honored. The school that he taught in, in Tianjin, is still there. The restaurant that he courted his wife in, in the city, as the, Tianjin is one of the largest cities in China, about 14 million people. The restaurant that they, would, that they went out on dates on is still there. Uh, the internment camp uh, remains as a museum, and the University of Edinburgh set up a monument to him. There is no mention of Little's defining Christian faith there um, because the Chinese government wouldn't allow it. Um, but the monument remains to attest to his personal character and to his athletic accomplishments. Uh, China often, because he was both born and died in China, he's often, uh, there's some his, uh, Chinese historians who claim him as their first, uh, first gold Olympian, interestingly enough. So one last thing I was going to read. Interesting point I would like to leave you with. This, this is something that struck me, particularly as we, you know, as we enter the, a new, new sporting season here in the United States and we, we think about all the time, energy that we, not only spectators but also participants put into sports in this day and age. And you know, I'll remind you, it's not just physical sports. It's not just basketball and football or NASCAR racing these days. We now have young men and women committing you know, 14, 16 hours a day to esports and to and to gaming leagues around the world. That's, those are, it's, become, it's turned from a hundreds of thousands to millions of dollar industry. So games and sporting are a definition of the world that we live in. But writing about Little, um, he says, the world has changed since Eric Little's day. In all facets of social life, including the sporting arena, yet in a real sense, the world today needs such characters as Eric Little as much as ever. As a sportsman, his example is still inspirational as one who, on the one hand, was wholehearted and determined in his approach, and yet, on the other hand, was not inclined to over-exaggerate uh, over the importance of sport. As for his mission work, China changed radically even during his own period of service there. Since, since then, the regime has not been at all hospitable Christian things, and the land cannot for the moment be called the mission field open to Western, or for that matter, Eastern missionaries. However, there does remain fruit resulting from all the work that was done by faithful missionary. Uh, such as Little and his successors. The last book of the Bible says, Write, blessed are the dead, which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. The work of the missionaries are not in vain. There appears to be a large and growing number of Christians in that increasingly responsive land. Little would often say that... Um, would often say he commit his life to all for Christ, for that, for that is all the world needs, and all that he did. So I'll leave you this morning. The um, uh, last thing I'd like to say before we finish this consideration of little is just to remember, uh, remember his simple, remember his simple devotion that defined all of his life. And for a man who worked as hard as he did, I you know I would want us all to remember his commitment to rest and to worship particularly on the Lord's Day.
it's good to see faces here. It's good to work. You know, it's a delight to worship with you all. But remember, this is a this is a whole day that the Lord has set apart. Um, so it's not a day to run out and you know run out and make someone else work to feed you lunch. It's not a day to be start thinking about or getting ahead on your work for the week coming ahead. Uh, as much as we would like to do that, I mean, we live we live uh, we live in a day and a we live in a country that. Uh, exalts work and calling and professional advancement above all other things. And so our, my reminder to you today is to remember this day the Lord is set apart and remember the Lord who will honor those who honor him. Any, uh, any other questions or observations as we wrap up here today? It's a lot, as usual, there's been a lot of information. Yep. Yeah, quite a bit. Uh, I did not get to dive into that as much as I would like, uh, but a lot of his biographers have. The biography that I was reading focused was, was by both a pastor and an athlete, so he did a lot of focus on those two elements of him. But there's, other, there's a lot of other more um, personal, more personal biography. Um, David McCaslin's Pure Gold includes a lot, of his, a lot more of his relationship with Florence and a lot of their letters written back and forth to each other. So I'd recommend that one if you want to know more about his personal life. Well, that's because after World War II, um, Lao Zedong and the Communist Party yeah, took over China. Yeah. But that remnant, did God preserve a remnant of those people? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, the, Chinese, the church in China is growing faster than the church in the United States right now. So, and the, uh, the work of the growth of the gospel is very, very messy, so it's hard to directly attribute who did what because the Spirit will take all the credit for that at the end of the day. Yeah, the roots are still there. Yeah, praise God for that. No. <laughs> no, definitely not. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the testimony of Eric and Florence Little. I thank you for their faithfulness to live, uh, to live uh, and to run the race uh, without hindrance and to run it with endurance. We pray that we would do the same, uh, and we pray that we would do it by your grace and in your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.